Let's go TC. Let's give it up for Jesus one more time. Awesome, man. It's so good to see you guys. We're so glad you're here. And we're going to get ready to jump into what we have tonight. And, and uh, man, that worship team went longer than they were supposed to. I don't know who taught them that here at TC. <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. No, it was awesome. And uh, so happy that the presence of God is in this place. And that's what changes lives. Amen. And uh, But also through his word. Go ahead and get your Bibles out. We're going to jump straight in tonight. And if you're new to a first Wednesday with us, if you've never been here for a first Wednesday, kind of catch you up on on uh, what happens. So first Wednesdays are a little different than Sundays for us. First Wednesdays, um, we're going to do what we call an expository message. What, what that means is we're literally just going to move through the passages of the Bible that we have, and we're going to pull out what the passage says, okay? So whereas on Sunday, we may be what we call a topical sermon. We're going to deal with topics. On first Wednesdays, we do an exposition. So we're just going to expose what the scripture says, and tonight we're going to be in Romans 8. And so go ahead and turn to Romans 8 with us if you have your Bible. Um, and we're going to get ready to jump straight in. I'm going to start with prayer and then we'll We'll get into it. All right, guys. Father, we thank you for tonight once again, and we're just so grateful uh, that we get to come and we get to read your word together, that we get to worship together, that we get to uh, just spend time in your presence. I pray that your, your word, as we read it, it would read us. Uh, Father, and that we would let it expose to us every way in which we can know you more and become more like you. And those are our desires. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. We're going to go to Romans 8. To catch you up, we've been dealing with Paul writing to the Romans, hence the book Romans. Uh, and so we are catch you up from chapter 7. In chapter 7, uh, we see Paul is dealing with this idea of being slaves to righteousness or slaves to sin. All right, and so in chapter 7, he deals with this idea of being released from the law, right? And then he goes on this tangent in verses 15 through 20 about how he keeps doing the things he doesn't want to do. So it's like, man, I keep doing the things I don't want to do and the things I don't want to do. I find myself doing. You guys have heard that in Romans 7. Matter of fact, we'll read verses 15 through 20 of 7 real quick just to give you clarity in what Paul's talking about. He says, uh, For I do not understand my own actions, I do not, I do, not do what I want to do. Right. So, so I don't do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. Can anybody relate to that? Anybody ever like, man, God, I'm really trying over here, but this person is testing my patience right now. Like anybody ever been in the place where it's like, I'm really trying right now. But all the things I, uh, I on Sunday, I went to the altar. I got prayer and I said, I'm no longer doing this. But come Monday. Come on, don't get like that. Right. Like come Monday. Right. Uh, maybe some of you make it to Tuesday. You're holier than us. All right. But like whatever it is, you, you find yourself in that space where like I find myself doing the things that I hate. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And now I do the thing that I hate. Now, I don't do what I want to do. I agree with what I don't want to do. I, I agree. Sorry. With the law. That is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but our sin that dwells within me. For I, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what is right. But do not have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. That's what Paul's talking about here. Now, if there's any encouragement you needed, take great hope. Because he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, or half of the New Testament. So you're in good hands if you find yourself in that space. But let's gonna, we're going to go to chapter 8, and we're going to pick up in verse 1. And right away, he gives clarity as to why he's talking about all those things. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Come on, that should bring a moment of celebration right now. You may have, I know you might, maybe you work today, but that should do something in your soul. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is good news because there could be condemnation. We deserve condemnation. Amen. We experience condemnation. Not from God, but within our own hearts, right? But there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit uh, I'm going to keep on going. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I'm going to say that again. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So what we have here is a moment of clarity where Paul is giving us an idea that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But then he goes on. Let's break this section of past, or this passage of Scripture down real quick, and then we'll keep going. But it, it brings about a few things for, for, there is, for those that are in Christ. But here's the deal. For those who are not in Christ, there is condemnation. And one of the greatest reasons that people in the world experience a struggle with the reality of God is they also experience the weight of their own sin. So they, they, or for anyone in the room, maybe we, like outside of Christ, outside of grace, outside of mercy, we struggle with what we go through. We struggle with the sin in our life because the weight of our own sin is present. And here's the reality. Every sin will experience the eternal reality of Christ. I'm going to say it again. Every sin, every person will experience the eternal reality of Christ. It will either be in repentance now or in the face of judgment later. So let me help you out for a second. Every ounce of sin in your life will either come under repentance and grace on earth, or it will be met with wrathful judgment after. And that should drive us with a confidence to say, first of all, thank you, God, for not for grace, that could be me. Come on. How many, of you, how many of you know God came looking for you far more than you went looking for God? Like he, he searched you out when you weren't searching him out, right? And so God has done the work, so there's no condemnation. This is a beautiful thing. But then it goes on in verse 2, says that the law of, uh, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And the, that law, not under the spirit of God, can't be fulfilled and leads to death. And so what he's saying there is, is the law exists to highlight in us areas we don't get it right. Anybody read the Bible and go, man, I got a lot of work to do. So the law, the word of God, his commandments, right? It does a good job highlighting in you where you're not getting it right. The beauty is the law, though it points us to the reality that we are sinful, the, the law of the Spirit, grace, shows us how we're free in Christ, even though we've failed to make it here. And so it says that we're free 
from the law of sin and death. So it keeps on going to verse 3. God has done, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. You see, I want to help you out for a second. Uh, remember in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, we've talked about that quite a bit lately with Reframe. Right? What happens in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything. Then he tells Eve, don't eat of these things. And we all know, what does she do? She eats of it, and then she gives it to her husband. And so he's like, ah, all right. So he eats of it, right? And so they've eaten of it. But the reality is this. God's law, God's order, God's rules, God's confinement, the things in which God puts in place around us, they're not to confine us. They are to protect us. Because there are things in life, things in our world that we're not supposed to have, but we want to have. So the law was here to protect us. And how many of you guys know true protection is true freedom. So to be free in Christ with a confinement from things we shouldn't have is far better to be free in the world with absolute freedom for all the things we shouldn't have. And God comes in and Paul communicates to us in Romans chapter 8. He's saying the law was actually here to free you, but it didn't. It was actually here to protect you, but it didn't. So God did what the law couldn't do and gave you both freedom and protection. God, the law was the list of rules you were supposed to obey. And if you obeyed them, you got to go where you were supposed to go. But how many guys know we screwed that up? Right? So God did what the law couldn't do and gave us access to eternity even though we couldn't make it on our own. And so he, the, God did what the law couldn't do because it was weakened by our flesh. So he, how did he do it? He sent his own son to die for us. And so, man, we, we see that he accomplished it and fulfilled it. Verses 4 through 6, let's keep going. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh. Say, not according to the flesh. So as believers, we are not to walk according to the flesh. You know what that means? Well, that's just my personality is no longer excuse for your sin problem. Well, that's my Enneagram type, not an excuse for your sin problem. Well, you don't know what they did to me first, not an excuse for your sin problem. Well, it's been, I had a hard day, so I need not an excuse for your sin problem, right? And so he, he comes on the scene in order that the righteous required of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, for those who live according to the flesh, say according to the flesh, those that live according to the flesh, those that live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. We need to set our minds on the things that are of the Spirit. That's why when you look at Colossians 3, as a matter of fact, I'll read this to you from Colossians 3. This is verses 1 through 6. Colossians 3, he deals with this topic again. And he says it like this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. So if you're a Christian, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things that are above where Christ is, right? Who helps you do that? The Spirit. So if your mind is set on the Spirit, you're putting your attention on things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And this is where it picks up in verse 5. This, I said all that so you would get verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Notice how he didn't say, like, hide it in the closet. Right? Matt Chandler uses this analogy, but I think it's so perfect that I have to use it myself. Uh, anybody like watching shows When Animals Attack? Anybody ever watch those shows? Does anybody else root for the animals? You know what I'm saying? Like, if you're going to be dumb enough, like, oh, it's a pet bear. No. Like, you know, like, so, uh, and so uh, there was an episode where the, there was like, they were trying to sell like shampoo. So they took like this woman dressed in a string bikini and laid it across a lion, right? And they're like, buy our shampoo. And what happens? The lion like gets her by the shoulder, right? And the trainer's like, I have no idea what happened. And it's like, it's a lion. That's what happened, right? Like, you, you lay, you laid, uh, like literally apex predator, you laid a person on it and it bit into the woman, right? So you, it's not that you don't know what happened. It's not that you don't know why it's happened. It's just that you're an idiot, okay? So it's like, I don't know. Well, it's a lion, right? And I think for some of us, we treat our, we try to treat our sin like well-trained lions. Where it may not attack you today, Right? Put a slice of cheesy pepperoni pizza in front of me right now. I may not eat it right now. I may not be hungry right now. But eventually, come on, y'all know what I'm talking about. Like, I'm eating this pizza, right? Because that's what I do, okay? <laughs> so, right? Uh, can I help you out with something? That's what lions do. And listen to me, that's what sin does. Sin is not something you can train to be obedient to you. Colossians 3 says, kill it before it kills you. Put to death whatever is earthly in your nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And what Romans 8 is dealing with, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit, is exactly what he's dealing with in Colossians 3. For far too many of us, we're trying to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. I want to be godly. I want to lead a godly home. I want to live a godly life. I want to do godly things. But we're entertaining things in our life that have no presence coexisting with the spirit of God and Paul says you've got to get rid of those things for to set the mind picking up in verse six for to set the mind on the flesh is death it will kill you listen to me your sin that you keep tolerating that you tell no one about and therefore you do nothing with will kill you it will kill you you are only as sick as your secrets and so you have to allow someone into that very vulnerable, difficult position of your life to help hold you accountable for the things that help put your mind on the spirit and not on the flesh. So we set our minds on the things of the spirit, which is life and peace. God, how come I don't have life? How come I don't have peace? How come I'm struggling with this? Well, let me ask you a question. Are you still living a Christian worldly dual life? Are you still entertaining things of the flesh while trying to pursue things of the spirit and can't figure out why your peace is disrupted? I sat down with someone the other day in my office and we were talking. And as we were talking, he, he was telling me just kind of what he's going through. And I said, oh, cool. So what you're telling me is like you live like a Christian at church and you live like a heathen when you're not at church. 
And he was like, well, I mean, I wouldn't put it that way. I was like, I would. That's how I would put it. <laughs> like, that's, that's exactly how I would put it, right? And he's like, I just feel like I'm having a hard time. I have a hard time dealing with um, who, who, what's inside of me. I'm having a hard time. Like, I, I feel like there's two different lives. And I said, well, that's because you're living two different lives. I said, and here, here's where your tension is coming from. You're starting to get into groups. You're starting to serve on teams. Your, your Christian life is increasing, and what's happening is you're losing the ability to buffer between the two lives you've created. And so it's not that you're bipolar. It's not that you're going through a spiritual crisis. It's that your ability to tightrope between the world and the spirit is starting to get small, and eventually you're just going to fall off the rope. And listen to me. It's not the church's fault, and it's not God's fault when it happens. So you, you either pick which side you land on or that side will pick you. And I'm here to tell you the world and your flesh will win that battle. And so we have to choose to walk in the spirit. So let's go back to verses 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. If you've got a pen or a highlighter circle or underline or whatever that word hostile it's not, here's the thing, your flesh is not indifferent to God. It is like aggressively opposed to God. Your flesh isn't like, oh man, that biblical stuff's crazy. Your flesh is, we need to destroy what's happening that is godly in you before it destroys me. As much as you need to aggressively pursue your sin, your sin is aggressively pursuing you. So you are hostile towards God. When you are of the flesh, is what it says. For it does not submit to God's law. And here's the other thing. Indeed, it cannot. Right? You see where it says? It can't. It can't submit to God's law. Which is why I have the phrase, I'm not shocked when fish swim, when birds fly, and when sinners sin. None of those things shock me because they can't. Second Corinthians 4 said their faith is veiled from the gospel. They can't even see that it's true. So when they do, when sinful people do sinful things, I'm not like... <gasps> I'm like, no, that makes perfect sense. Because they're hostile towards God. And when sinful people are angry at God, it doesn't shock me either because they're hostile towards God. We saw it in Romans 1 and it's showing back up in Romans 8. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we pick up at verse 9. You, however, stop. Circle it. Underline it, highlight it. So what Paul just did kind of gave us a synopsis of why people are struggling. He gave us a synopsis of if you're dealing with this and you're dealing with this, this might be why you're dealing with this. He gave a synopsis of unsafe people do this, Christians do this. You should focus on the spirit, not on the flesh. Good thing we're not under condemnation. But if the, for those that are under condemnation, they are far from God. He gives us his whole synopsis. And then he goes, but you. Look at your neighbor and say, but you. You, however... Which means the script just changed. And this is where we pick up. You, however, are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. So if you are in Christ Jesus, if, you, if your faith has been put in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you are walking according to the spirit, you, however, are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. 
So you're walking in the Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. I'm going to say that again. Anyone that does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, which goes ahead and dismantles the idea that good people exist, and if you're a good person, you'll get in. That's, if you're not of him, you're not with him, right? And so what are we looking at here? Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if he's, but if Christ, speaking of verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So he's saying, listen, if you belong to Christ, let every part of you belong to Christ. And that's where we pick up in verse 12. Let's go. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh. Say debtors. We are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Now, let me just pause for a second. We had to do a lot of breakdown in that first part of 8. We're going to kind of start cruising a little bit more now. So we're going to read some more, break it down, read some more, break it down. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with your spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him him all right so just take a second and let's break down the first thing i want you to understand so then brothers we are debtors not of the flesh listen all of our debt is not surrendered to our flesh all of our debt is not surrendered everything we owe we owe to christ jesus everything we listen every every dollar you own isn't because your job is awesome it's because jesus graced you with what you have your home is a grace and a mercy of jesus christ to give you what you could not have gotten on your own all right, everything you have. So our debt is not to worldly things. Our debt is not to our boss. Our debt is not to our spouse. Our debt is not to our children. Our debt is not, our, listen, our debt is to Christ and Christ alone because through him and to him are all things that exist on the earth. And so we are in debt to one person and one person only because there is only one thing and one thing only that will exist after this world and it is heaven. And the only way we get there is through Christ Jesus. And so our debt is to him and to him alone. We owe him everything. But then I love what happens in 14 through 17, where he starts getting into this idea of adoption, right? And let's go to verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Underline it, circle it, highlight it, whatever you got. We are sons and daughters of God. Okay, so, so we belong to him. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, to fall back into fear. In other words, he's saying, you didn't receive, when, when, when God came and adopted you, when God came and rescued you, when God came after you, you shouldn't have received a spirit of fear. Oh no, and we tremble under the weight of Almighty, but we also, although he is Almighty and although our sin is weighty, we should come to him with a grace and an understanding. The way we approach God is not, oh, he's gonna crush me. It's, oh, Father, I need you. 
Like, I, I, I think about all the, the nieces and, and even my son Jabin. When I, re, I remember he, he, they would, they, he, and then they have all gone through seasons where they, they would run up to me and they would just put their arms out when they were scared. Anybody, like, has anybody experienced that? Like, you get around a kid and you're trying to pick them up and they're like, no, no. And then, like, a loud motorcycle goes by the house and they're like, oh, God, you know. And they come running to you like, pick me up, pick me up, pick me up. Why? Because they're terrified, right? And the thing is, it's like we don't come to God out of fear. We come to God out of a confidence that I don't need anybody else except for him and so what happens we cry out Abba Father the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and so he says that we come through adoption and then as we come through adoption we become children of God so he adopts us into his family but then as he adopts us into his family we get to be called children of God but then he goes a step further and says not only we're not just children of God we're heirs to the kingdom of God you know what that means does anybody in here is anybody here an heir no I didn't think so okay so when you think of heir I think like a 2022 the 21st century America doesn't do much with heirs of kingdoms okay but I think like old school Britain would probably help us out a little bit with this. We could understand this better. But uh, you, you know how there's like queens and then the queen has a son or a king has a son. And the son, when the king dies, then the son naturally takes over the kingship, right? So they take over the kingdom. And so they, have, they, they don't have to do anything. It's strictly because of who they are. And listen to me, who they belong to, they have access to something they couldn't have earned on their own. And what he's saying here is, I've adopted you. And since I've adopted you, you're my children. And since you're my children, you're an heir. And even though you didn't do anything to deserve this, you now have access to something that's coming after this life. That though you couldn't have earned it, I gave it to you anyways because now you're an heir of my kingdom. And that's the beauty behind what Paul is showing us here, right? So he comes on the scene but we're children of God and we're heirs, heirs of God and fellowship, heirs with Christ, our fellow heirs with Christ. But this is the last part. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I don't care for that part. What is he saying? Provided that we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. Well, what was the suffering? Lay down your life, take up your cross, and pursue after righteousness. Lay down your life. You are heirs to the kingdom of heaven. But you will suffer to experience glory. Now, I think we've lost this message in the 21st century church. It's like health, wealth, and prosperity. I'm like, man, that is crazy. I don't... And listen, I'm not against people being prosperous. I'm not against God giving to you. I'm not against, listen, I, me and my wife, we're going to leave here today and we're going to eat food. Like, we are blessed, okay? So we, like, we're, we are well taken care of. I want God to take care of you well. I don't have any desire to see any person begging for anything, all right? If we're heirs to the kingdom, I hope that God also takes care of us on earth, okay? Now, there's ways that we can sow into the kingdom to confirm that God will sow back into us. We'll get into that soon, okay? But all that to say is I don't desire that anyone would be a beggar but what I am saying is there is a suffering that is necessary for you to experience glory and if you if you refuse to cling to God in suffering 
then we don't have access to clinging to God in glory. And what, one of the best things that can happen to a 21st century church, I've said this before, I'll say it again, one of the best things that can happen to a 21st century, particularly American church, is that lost people see Christians suffer well and still love God. And so what do we need to see happen? We need to see a suffering that happens. Now listen, I, I pray that you know, all of us aren't going to suffer the same. We know that. All of us aren't going to experience the worst pain imaginable. I don't pray that for you. I don't pray that for myself. What I'm saying is there will be suffering. And if in the moment of suffering you pursue your flesh instead of the spirit, then your adoption may be questioned. Not because you lost something, but because perhaps you didn't actually have it. Which is why I think a lot of people that are claiming Christianity experience hardships and then they lose their faith. I question if they ever had their faith or did they have a glorified version of religion that was like a monopoly get out of hell free card. And so what are we, what are we actually pursuing right now? I'm not, listen, we need to be careful of the idolatry of heaven. Because heaven is not the reward. Jesus is. Heaven is just the location. And so we need to understand what the ultimate goal is, is that we would have Jesus. We would know Jesus. We would walk with Jesus. And Jesus would be our reward. And listen, that means if I have to hurt a little bit on this earth to get my reward, then I will endure it and I will sing his praises all the more until I get to where I ultimately see him face to face. And so we experience adoption. And so we pick up in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. What a scripture. Like, read it again and let it get in your bones. Paul is speaking. Now, for the record, let's keep in mind who Paul is. Right? Put in prison. Shipwrecked. Floated in the ocean for a day. Landed on an island, bitten by a snake, whipped, like, and he's saying, I consider all the sufferings of this present time, they're not even worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed for us. Like, listen, some of us, like, we're like a pink slip away from losing everything in our faith. Like, God, I just, I don't know. And it's like, man, he's saying, like, I consider all the sufferings. Of, I, man, it is what it is, but it's not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed within each of us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, I want to pause for a second and make sure that we understand from verse 18. We're talking about suffering in the present time, not comparing to the weight of what it will be revealed. Some, some translations say uh, for the weight of glory. And uh, so current sufferings don't compare to the glory that will be revealed. Uh, and I think that there's beauty in that phrasing. But this is why, and I've said it, I've said it, I've said it, and I'll keep on saying that's why a proper eschatological discipleship is necessary. Let me break that word down. So a proper... <laughs> A proper discipleship process to show people that the end is far more important than the current is so important because it is so easy to get more caught up on this life than to be caught up on the life in eternity. This matters so much. This is what I want. I want this job. I want this thing. I want that. And it's like, man, and I'm not saying any of those things are bad. I'm saying, are you more concerned with those things than you are concerned with what's coming for us? 
And listen, we're, we can all be guilty, man. We can all be guilty. It is very easy to fall in love with the things of the world. Right? And I'm not even talking about sinful things. I'm talking about good things. It is, so, it is so easy to fall more in love with your children than it is with God. And that's not a bad thing that you would love your children. It is a bad thing you would love your children more than God. It is so easy to love your career more than you love God. Is it a bad thing to love your career? No, I love mine. Right? But it's a bad thing to love it more than God. So it's understanding like that we have to put those things in check and understand the end, listen to me, the end is coming. Now, I, when I was a kid, they were like, the end is coming. You're never going to get your driver's license because the rapture is going to snatch us all out of here. I'm 35 now, so some of them should have got stoned as false prophets. But, but all that to say is I, I don't know when the end is coming. And listen, we may all make it into our old age and pass on before the end actually comes. But it is coming. And we will be held accountable for what we did with what we had during the time that we were here. And we need to always keep that in mind. Not that it would strike fear in our hearts, but it would motivate us to live more like Christ each day. That's what it should motivate us to do. It shouldn't cause us to, like some friends, Pastor Dan and I have, cower on a farm somewhere, and it's like, we're just going to wait out the rapture. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't know if that's the Great Commission <laughs> at all. All right? So, uh, but... But it should drive us, not with fear and anxiety, but with purpose to know that God is calling us to something great. Let's keep moving. Verse 19. So, like, with the groaning, with uh, to reveal the sons of God. Sorry, verse 20. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The creation, who's the creation? Us. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage. What bondage? The world, the sin of the world, the anxiety we have to experience because of the world. That we'd be set free from its bondage to corruption and how our body keeps wanting us to sin and the tension between what we want to do and what we're not doing. All those things that Paul talked about in Romans chapter 7. So that with the corruption, but that we would obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For hope for what he sees, for, sorry, for who, hope, who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with Peace. Now, to gain clarity for what we're talking about there in verse 19, he talks about the groaning. Like all of creation is weighed, it's groaning. For we know that the whole creation, verse 22, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And what he's talking about there is anybody notice how when you turn on the news, when you look around society, you're like, something has got to change. Like anybody, like anybody, some of you are like, Jesus, just come back now, <laughs> right? Like, like, so what, what are we seeing? We're seeing a, a, all of creation is groaning. Anyone ever been close to a woman who was in, in labor with a child, right? There's a groaning, amen? 
There was only three. <laughs> Ladies, there's a, there's a groaning, amen? <laughs> like, okay, yes, all right. I was like, I was like I, I, it hasn't happened to me, but based on what I saw, <laughs> right? <laughs> so like, there, there is a groaning. There is a, there is a get this thing out of me right now that happens, okay? And what is happening? There is something in the, in the world. There's something happening on the earth. There is a something is wrong. And we need it fixed right now that is happening in the world. And it's been happening in the world. By the way, like the stuff that's going on in the world isn't new. Just read about Nero. Like read about stuff. Like just go back to the ages. This isn't new. But all of creation is groaning. We're waiting for the thing that's going to fix all of this, right? But it says that creation, this is something that's interesting uh, when you read those passages uh, around verses 19. It says that creation visibly groans. So in creation, there is war, there is famine, earthquakes, disease, deception, wickedness. So we can see in creation that there's a groaning of, man, something needs to, all of this, none of this is right. It needs to get fixed. But then he also says that for us, for, for believers, for the redeemed, there's an inward groaning that happens for us. So though we look into the world and we say, oh, man, this is broken and this is messed up and it needs to be fixed. For believers, as much as there's going on out there, there's something inside of here that we're going, something's not right. Like something, like, as much as I want to have peace, part of it's still missing. As much as I want to have joy, it still gets disrupted. As much as I want to have hope, I can't seem to cling to it. It seems to escape me, right? And even beyond that, there's pains and there's sorrow and there's grief. Why? Because everything in us that is experiencing the effect of sin in our world is telling us we're looking forward to the day where it no longer affects us. And so... There's a, a weight, there's a groaning that's going on in the inside of us. That's why Philippians 3.20, he says this, Paul says, but our citizenship, it's in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What is he saying? I'm not, I'm not a citizen of this world. So for, 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 for so many people who are so in love with this world, we're not even a citizen of the world. We were adopted into sonship, a heavenly sonship. That means this world is not our home. So ultimately, we're just pilgrims passing through a foreign land until we get to our ultimate destination because we're heirs to the kingdom. Amen? Let's go to verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Anybody ever been in that place in prayer before where you ran out of words and you almost just had to lean into God and say, you know what I need? That's what he's talking about here. When the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit is praying for you right now. How powerful is that? And we know that for those who love God, all things, say all things, all things things work together for good. For those who love God, 
all things work together for good. Listen to me. Even the parts you hate. Even the parts of your life you did not like. I want to get real with you for a second. Even the father in your life that wasn't actually a good father to you. Because God can use that to drive you to a heavenly father when your earthly father skipped out on you. Even the abuse that you experienced that you should not have had to experience. Someone failed you. Someone hurt you. But listen to me. God can use that. Because if you love him, all of those things can work together for your good. You say, how does that work? I don't know how all of it works. But I know it can work together for your good. He'll, it's not that it works for your good. It's that he will work it for your good. And so God is doing that for you. All things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he also called, he also justified. And those he also justified, he also glorified. Now, I'm really not going to get into the sovereignty and salvation thing, even though I really, really want to, but it's 754. <laughs> so <laughs> I can't. We have kids that back there. So, um, But I, I will say this, right? is that, uh, that God predestined and he called and he justifies and he glorifies. And I will say this part, God's portion of you being saved far outweighs your portion of you being saved. God's pursuit of you far outweighs your pursuit of God. And I would even say, God's prompting and initiation in your salvation far outweighs your prompting and initiation in your salvation. God did far more of the work than you did. But then it says this. Look at you. Then he says this. You're predestined. Because you're predestined, you're called. Because you're called, you're justified. And because you're justified, you'll be glorified. Let me give you some words that may help like, put that into a space for you. Because that's a very powerful segment of words that Paul uses. He says, you have been chosen. Look at your neighbor and say chosen. I want you to listen to me. You've been chosen. Hmm. I don't know why I feel like the spirit is hitting this pause button for a second, but I feel like he is. For some of you, you've questioned whether or not you should ever be chosen for anything. I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not talented enough. No one could love me like that. Who am I? I don't deserve good things. Some of you have You've bought into a lie that someone planted in your brain decades ago and you've let it define you. But God says you are chosen for those he predestined, 
for those that before the foundation of the world was ever laid, before Genesis 1 happened, before Genesis 3 fell, God knew you, saw you, and chose you to bring you to himself. I pray that that would override every moment of insecurity in your hearts. He chose you, but that's not done. After he chose you, he drew you to himself. Think about that. He, he went after you. I think about, I think about when I, I wanted to date my wife. I chose my wife, but I still had to do some work to get her to choose me. Y'all know what I'm talking about? She's out of my league. So I had to, I had to do some work. I had to, had to woo her to myself. Come, hey, you want to hang out? You want to get together? You know, we were in high school, so we were broke. <laughs> Let's go to McDonald's, you know, like whatever. I, I chose her, but listen to me. Then I, then I, wooed, I wooed her to myself. And for some of you, I pray that God's affectionate drawing on your heart would become a reality to you. Chose you. He's drawing you. Listen to me. Then he saved you. Saved you from your sin. Saved you from yourself. Saved you from your temporary desires that might have been bigger to you than your eternal ones. Saved you. But then he's going to glorify you. Because he's going to let your life now glorify him. I'm re- he says, I'm going to redeem you. God, you don't know, Brad, you don't know how far I've gone. You don't know how many things I've got into. You don't know how many struggles I got. You don't know how many problems I have. I don't, but God does, and he knew it, and he still chose you. Let it give us confidence. God, you chose me. You drew me. You saved me. You've redeemed me. We're going to move very quickly through these last parts of the verses. I knew this one was going to be tough for time. What then shall we say to these things? Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Come on. If God is for us, who can be against us? I pray that gets into some of your bones. Man, if God is for me, I don't care what my family says. If God is for me, I don't care what the friends that I keep trying to get their opinion says. If God is for me, I don't care what the religious crowd that used to think this or that about me says. If God is for me, I don't care who's against me. But here's the reality. This isn't necessarily a, if God is for me, I don't care that my boss who is what. Like, no, no, no. It's actually saying if God is for me, then it really doesn't matter that, that you may be condemned by a religious crowd because grace is being extended to. If God is for you, it doesn't matter who's telling you who you're not because God God's telling you who you are. If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was the one who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is the part that I love. This is so good. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or death? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have a security in our faith. Listen, God chose you. God's been wooing you. God saved you. And listen, if he did all of that, don't you think he intends to finish it? Because God is invested in the glorification of his name in your story. So he will hold you through every season so that height nor depth nor angels the principalities none of those things are going to separate me from the love of God I'm going to stay close let's stand tonight